because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, 13, it's page 719 in the Pew Bible. So if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible under your chair or the chair in front of you. Page 719, Mark chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 to begin with, but we're actually going to attempt to cover the whole chapter of Mark 13, verses 1 through 37. I'll read the rest of the verses as we go along in the sermon this morning. So, Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. Hear then the word of the living and present God. As he was going out of the temple complex, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, across from the temple complex, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things will are about to take place? What will be the sign when all these things are about to take place? Then Jesus began by telling them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars... And rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you that you speak clearly to us in your word. We thank you for minds to think, ears to hear, mouths to speak, a church family to learn with as we discuss your word, as we think about your word. Lord, there are in this passage, we admit many, many confusing things, many tricky verses where you don't intend to trick us, Father, but we know that there are many different interpretations of so many different points in this passage Uh, So we pray, Father, that in the midst of many different ways of looking at this, that you would give us very clearly the main point of the passage, that we would hear your voice, that as we meditate on your word, you would change us and grow us, that we might experience the joy of following Christ and experience the joy of helping others follow Christ until the gospel spreads to all ethnic people groups in all the nations. Help us now by your Holy Spirit, glorify your name, not only in all the earth, not only in the city of Bellflower and Southeast LA County, but glorify your name in this building as we think about these things. In Jesus' name, amen. R.E.M. famously sang, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. So the question I have is, should we feel fine as the world is ending? If if it is the end of the world, should you feel fine when you're in these last days, the last days that Jesus speaks of here? Jesus is talking in many ways about the end of the world. Should we be alarmed? Should we be alert? Should we just feel fine? 
what should we think about the end of the world? Well, I think, as you heard me in my prayer pray, that the main point of this passage is very clear. There's a lot of tricky points in this chapter where we could go one way or another in terms of interpretation. But the main point of this passage is clear. Look at verse 5. It says, watch out that no one deceives you. So the, the command there is to do what? Watch out or be alert. Right? When you get to verse 8, be on your guard. Or verse 9, I'm sorry. Verse 9 says, be on your guard. Verse 21 and 22 says that if, if people are saying things, don't believe it. Verse 23 says, you must watch. When you get down to verse, the very end of the verse, verse 37, I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. The main command and the main point is very clear, isn't it? Watch out, be alert, be on your guard, be aware. That's the main point. So whatever we want to talk about in terms of the other interpretive factors in this passage, that's the main point is that we should be alert. It shouldn't just be fine to us. We shouldn't be paranoid. Maybe the song is, is saying in that way, but we should be alert and awake. Are you familiar with Amber Alerts that you get on your phone sometimes? An Amber Alert uh, this past uh, Thursday, we were in Oakland and we were getting we got two Amber Alerts on our phone. And so an Amber Alert, for those of you who don't know, is when your phone or when you get alerted that a, a child abduction has happened. And they give you the, the car make and model and the license plate if you're in that area. And they just basically tell you to be alert, be awake, look out, look around. Maybe, so I got one this Thursday. It was a gold Saturn. It had the year, and I, I can't remember the license plate number now, but we're on the freeway in traffic while this happened. And so we, I started looking around. Maybe that gold Saturn can be around where I'm at right now. And you just look around, survey the area. Perhaps we could be the ones who... Who, um, who catch this car to maybe save the alleged victim who's being kidnapped or put in danger. The idea, though, is that you should not just see the alert on your phone and then just continue going on as if nothing happened. The point is, look around, be alert, and watch out. And that's what Jesus wants us to do in this passage. To not, oh, Jesus is coming again. Put it back down and just keep going with what you were doing. That's not the point. The point is that you need to be alert Look out and look around. And so with that, let's jump right into the story in verse 1, or in verses 1 and 2. They're walking around the temple complex. Remember, this is still Tuesday, or this might be, yeah, I think this is Tuesday. Yeah, this is still Tuesday of the final week of Jesus' life before he dies. He dies on Friday. Remember, he was debating with people in the temple complex. They're on their way out of the temple. They go right across the east to the eastern hill, the Mount of Olives. They sit there, and you get a view of the whole city of Jerusalem. If you've been to Israel, you will not forget what it's like to sit on the Mount of Olives and look out on the whole city of Jerusalem. And particularly, well, now you'd have the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim Dome of the Rock. But back then, it would have been the temple, and you would see the whole thing. It's really a beautiful, breathtaking view from the other side of the mountain. And so they're there, you know, they're amazed by everything that's going on. And they're saying, what wonderful stones. And Jesus says in verse, th verse 2, these great stones, they're all going to be torn down and they won't, they won't be one on top of the other. Now, these are massive stones. Uh, there's one stone there that's 37 feet long. And I think it's like six tons. And you think about that in... 15 AD with no cranes. 
I mean, even with modern technology, getting stones like that is almost impossible. And we don't know how they did it, but there are huge stones that make, you know, the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. Tourists call it the Wailing Wall. If you're a local there, you call it the Western Wall. But the Western Wall there, there you go inside under a tunnel, and there's this huge, huge, massive stone. Just You, you, you look at it, it's, it's pretty high up, and you're thinking, how in the world did they get it up there? But they did. And, and it's impressive. It's very impressive. And, and the disciples are impressed by it then, just as we are today if you look at it. And Jesus says, you see these stones? They're all going to be torn down. This temple is going to be destroyed. That's the point. And so it raises the question. The question guides the, the, the whole chapter. Verse 3, um, as they're now sitting on the Mount of Olives looking out, they ask Jesus privately, verse 4, when is this going to happen? When will all these things happen? This, this turning over of the stones, this destruction of the temple, when will it happen? And what will be the sign when it's about to take place? So it's two questions. When is this temple going to be destroyed, like you said it was? And what will be the sign right before it happens? Okay? Two questions. When is it going to be destroyed? What's the sign that's going to happen right before it's about to happen? And that's the questions that guide this this chapter and what Jesus says here. So the way I'm going to break it down for us is by saying this. And by the way, if you don't have, you do have notes, I hope. There's notes in your handout in front of you. If not, there are um, there might be some still in the back there, but you could you could follow along here. The main idea here is Jesus gives us five elements to the expected end. So the expected end of the world, there's five elements to it and two responses we must have. Okay, five elements about the end, but front and back, and then two two responses. If you, I see some brothers going back there. Does anyone need a handout? Raise your hand if you do. One, two. Jim, if you could grab... Two handouts, at least. There's a few here who, who need them. Okay? So five elements of the expected end. And we'll look at them, um, yeah, one at a time. So let's start with the first one. Verses 5 and 6. Jesus says to them, he begins by telling them, watch out that no one does what? That no one misleads or deceives you. So number one, who needs one? Raise your hand if you need uh, notes. Lena got one. I think Barbara had one. Anyone else need need a handout? Everyone else has one? Okay, it looks like everyone has them. Okay. But notice here in verse 5, watch out that no one deceives you or misleads you. So number one is deception. The first element here that Jesus gives is that there's going to be a deception. Verse 6 says, many will come in whose name? In my name, Jesus says, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. If you go to verse 21, it says, if anyone tells you, look here. Here's the Messiah. Or look there. Don't believe it. For false Christs, false messiahs, and false prophets, false teachers will rise up and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, God's chosen ones. And you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. So there will be a great deception. There will be deception in in the end. Okay? And they're coming in the name of Jesus. They're, pers- they're performing persuasive signs and wonders. Should we, be the, should, we be, should we be surprised that many people who say they follow Jesus are led astray? Jesus says here, I've told you in advance. Sometimes we look at some you know, churches or people who say they believe in Jesus and they have these great massive followings. I think the largest quote-unquote church in America has over 50,000 people in a stadium that fills 
maybe 15 to 16,000. They have three services that are jam-packed in Texas. And the man who teaches there doesn't preach the gospel. Preaches a false gospel, a prosperity gospel. And some people look at that, some Christians will say, some Christians who actually believe the gospel will look at that and say, he's a great teacher. Because how could you have a church that big if he wasn't a great teacher? And I'm not saying big churches are bad. There are many great, there are many good, faithful big churches. Praise God for them. There are also many unfaithful, false teaching big churches. There's also false teaching small churches, right? So the size of the church is not the issue. The point is that you could have 50,000 people and Christians who really believe in the gospel saying, this guy is a great teacher because of what they see. How could he not be a great teacher? Listen to the music. Look at the faces of the people. Listen to his message. Doesn't it feel good? And they're not actually coming in the name of Jesus, preaching the words of Jesus in the scripture. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters, by the deception that is coming. Expect it. Second Timothy two, Second Timothy four, verses three and four says, The time will come when the people in the church will not tolerate sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, will will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. They will turn away from hearing the truth and turn aside to myths. These are people in the church Paul's writing to when he's talking to Timothy, not those outside. We look at this sometimes and we look at how the world or America has gone astray. And that's not to say they haven't. But Jesus is warning about those who believe in him. Those who are coming in whose name? In his name. And they're saying, well, I love Jesus. I love the Bible. I'm following this guy or these people. These must be the right teachers. Deception is a mark of the end. So don't merely assume you're not being deceived because you go to a church or because you read your Bible. You can still be deceived. The Galatians were deceived of works righteousness. The Colossians were deceived about who Jesus was, whether he was fully God and fully man or not. The Corinthians were tricked about teachings of the resurrection. And about morals and ethics, marriage and singleness. The Thessalonians were tricked about the end times. They were confused and thought Jesus came already. And the apostles were still alive. If you're being tricked and the apostles are still alive, how much more will the church in church history become tricked after the apostles have died? Right? Don't be surprised by people who claim to be Christian and even some true Christians who are deceived. Don't be deceived by that. Don't be tricked by it. Don't, don't be surprised by it. And even more importantly, don't follow or don't, don't be tricked yourselves. One more thing with that. Don't be self-righteous towards those who are deceived. But love them and pray for them and seek to speak the truth to them in love. Heresy does not come in a big package that has the big fat label in front saying heresy. If it did, no one would be tricked by it. You know, if it, it just like a big bottle saying poison, and then you try to trick someone, oh, here, drink some of this, and it's labeled poison on it. Nobody drinks that because it's not tricky. It's not deceptive. It's supposed to be hard to discern in some ways. It's supposed to be convincing and persuasive. That's number one, deception. Number two, verses seven and eight, disaster. So not only will there be an element of deception, there will be an element of disaster. Look at verses seven and eight. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So there will be wars. There will be tensions between political states. There will actually be wars. There will be rumors of wars. I was talking to 
uh, Pastor Merle just a second ago, but, you know, we're talking about World War II, even, as we're talking about Memorial Day. And, you know, um, I didn't live through that time, but some of you might remember how some might think, is this the end of the world? You know, what's going on here? And it could have been. And World War III can come right around the corner. It can certainly come in our lifetime. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There's always international tension, nation rising up against nation. Ever since the Tower of Babel, when God, when everyone tried to make a name for themselves, they split up into different groups, ethnic people groups, and then they're trying to make a name for their ethnic people group, you're going to have war with each other because there's self-exaltation from two different groups. So don't be surprised by that. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. But the end is not what? In verse 7. It's not yet. Okay, notice it's not, we think of, when we see wars and rumors of wars, we think, oh, that means this is the end now. But Jesus says the exact opposite. The wars and the rumors of wars is saying that the end is not yet, at least in, when Jesus is talking to them in 33 AD. Just because you hear of wars and rumors of wars, it might be the end, it might not be the end. Here it says it not yet, at least in 33 AD. So not only do you have disaster regarding international disaster, but you also have in verse 8, Natural disasters. There will be earthquakes in various places. You have famine in various places. So this will happen. This is another element of things to come before the end. And at least for Jesus, even here in some ways, before the temple is destroyed, at least in part. So natural disasters. When there's earthquakes, when there's famines, the command is what? In verse Seven, don't be what? Don't be alarmed. Don't panic. Don't be paranoid. Expect it. If you're a Christian, don't be alarmed. I understand if you're not a Christian. By the way, if you're not a Christian, you're here today. Thank you for coming. Uh, This is a peculiar passage you've visited us on as we talk about the end of the world, but we're, we're glad you're here. And as Christians, we need to not be paranoid and fearful of the end. Now, as a non Christian, It's completely understandable. I would actually say commendable if you were a little frightened about the end because the end does imply judgment day for all of us as well. Okay, so you have number one, deception. Number two, disaster. Number three, verses 9 through 13, you have opposition. Opposition. Opposition to those who are in Christ. Verse 9 says, but be on your guard. Why? Why do we need to be on our guard, Lord Jesus? They will hand you over to the Sanhed- to Sanhedrins, that's councils, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You'll be tortured. You'll be whipped. You will stand before governors and kings because of who? Because of me as a witness to them. So why are you going to be tortured? Why are you going to be opposed? Because of who? Because of Christ. If you identify with Christ, you will be opposed. And you will stand before people who are asking you questions, not just out of curiosity, but oftentimes out of hostility. And in those moments, do not be surprised, be on your guard. Verse 9 says, uh, you will be a witness to them. Verse 10, here's why, the main reason, verse 10. And the good news, the gospel, must be first proclaimed where? To all what? All nations, all ethnic people groups. The way Matthew says it in Matthew 24 is, this gospel of the kingdom will be a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Before the end comes, the gospel spreads to all ethnic people groups. Now, that could be us doing it. If you read Revelation 14, uh, there's an angel proclaiming the gospel in the sky, so maybe it 
It could be it could be right now in this moment an angel comes and proclaims the gospel everywhere to all nations and then the end comes. But the point here is that the gospel is spread to all nations. And who's the one spreading it here on earth? The churches, right? And when you spread the gospel, people receive the gospel. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. But does everyone have faith? No. Well, so not only do you get reception, you also get rejection, right? Opposition. You don't get opposition when you stay quiet. You don't get opposition when you don't identify with Christ publicly. You don't get opposition when you keep your mouth zipped. You get opposition when you lovingly, sacrificially engage the lost. Amen. And that's Jesus' expectation of Christians. Why do you get opposed? Because you can't stay silent. Like Jeremiah, it's fire in your bones. You're going to burn up inside if you don't get it out. And so you see your neighbor, and you pray, and you think, and you strategize, how can I get to a conversation about the gospel? And that might bring reception from some. Oftentimes in our culture here, thankfully in some ways, at least for our safety, indifference from others. But still from others, you not only get indifference, you get hostility and opposition. And when you're doing that as Christians, you will get opposition. Not only that, look, read on in verse, that's verse 10, verse 11. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand. Don't worry what you will say. On the contrary, whatever is given to you in that hour, say it. Why? For it isn't you speaking, but who? The Holy Spirit. Praise God for that verse. Amen. <laughs> Praise God we have the Holy Spirit. You know, have you ever tried to talk to a non-Christian who's very good at asking hard questions? And you feel like you have to have all the answers before you even bring up the conversation? Jesus says for you to do the exact opposite. Don't even prepare in some ways. Just talk. And just say it and trust the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean you'll always win the argument. But you can be humble about it. And that also speaks volumes. But it's, an, it's a blessing that the Holy Spirit lives in us and he speaks through us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If, if people want to know, where does God live today? My answer is, go to Christians and go to the church. Go to a local church body gathered together. The Holy Spirit lives there. God lives in his temple. And because God lives in us, the Spirit lives in us, we can speak boldly even in opposition. Verse 12, this is how deep the opposition goes though. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and put them to death. And you will be hated by everyone because of my name. Wow. This is not easy. This cuts to the very core of your closest family relationships. Parents and children. Brothers and brothers. Sisters and sisters. Siblings. It could even be spouses in some ways. It's a little bit trickier of water to navigate there. But the point here is that there will be opposition even from those who are most loyal to you, humanly speaking. Don't be surprised. Don't even be shaken. Look at verse 13. What's the call? But, but the one who what? Endures. The one who endures to the end will be saved. So here's the challenge. Endure. Matthew 24 says that the love of many will... Wax cold. I like that that, that uh, King James. You know, the love of many will grow cold, but uh, that's a literal translation. But the love of many will wax cold. You know, like you know, hot wax comes off a candle and it gets on your finger, and at first you kind of jump a little bit, and then it, it gets cold so quickly. 
what a great analogy. I mean, it's sad, it's sad about what it's, what it's representing, but it's a great analogy to get the picture that there are many who say, I love Jesus, and they get on fire real quick, they're hot, and then within seconds, they get cold. And you're like, remember when that brother came down the aisle and was just so passionate for Jesus for a week, or for a month, or for a year, or for five years, or for ten years, and then fell away? And their love grew cold? They didn't endure Endurance is needed. What this means is that there's a, it's possible to profess faith in Jesus and not endure. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. The Bible is very clear. Romans 8.30 or Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. There's no one who falls out of that link from from foreknown to predestined to called to justified to glorified. Everyone who's in that chain stays in that chain. You can't lose your salvation. If you're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, you will be glorified. You can't lose it. And yet there are people who think they're justified and are not really justified. Because they say they believe in Christ, but they don't really believe in Christ. Now, they might even 100% sincerely believe they believe in Christ. But they could also be mistaken. That's why... The one who endures to the end will be saved. There is a profession of faith that does not endure. We call that apostasy or apostates. Mark 4.17 talks about some who receive the word. Remember the soils, the four different soils? And then one of the soils, it's there on rocky ground. The word of God is the seed. It goes into the rocky ground. It springs up. And then the sun beats down on that plant. And then the plant dies. And then Jesus says... It's because of trials and tribulation and persecution. They don't hang. They don't endure. They give up. Hebrews 3.12 says, Watch out, brothers, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. He's talking to brothers. Among you, church, there can be an evil, unbelieving heart that causes you to fall away from the living God. The one who endures to the end will be saved. So there is a profession of faith that doesn't endure. And then there's a profession of faith that does endure to the end. That perseveres through persecution, through trial, and even through the distractions and the temptations of this world that woos them away from Christ. This, by the way, is one other reason why church membership is important. And church membership roles are important. I know I harp on this from time to time, but it's important because the ones who endure to the end will be saved. And there are those who don't endure. Now, that doesn't mean everyone who's not here at this church who's on our list hasn't endured. I got a wonderful email recently from, is it Seacrest? Is that how you say the last name? Seacrest. Any of you familiar with the Seacrest family? They're um, a, a prominent family that helped found this church in 1949. Well, one of the daughters who was here at the founding, um, she's now in Texas. And she emailed me about the church. She said, I'm looking for Bethany Baptist Church. I see that you're First Southern Baptist Church. There was a church there on Compton Boulevard. Is it still there? You know, I emailed her back and said, oh, yeah, this is Bethany Baptist Church and emailed her about it. And then I asked her, what church do you go to? I found a great church in Texas and me and my family are serving here. So my point here is that not everyone who's on that list is not. I'm not saying all those people are not saved. We just don't know where, where some of them are, but some of them could not be saved. Right. And some of us, you know, the point here is that you have a membership role to, to keep clear on who's enduring as, as best we can tell as we share life together. And so we need that. 
Okay, so that's the second one, or the third one. The third one here is opposition. So you have deception in the end times. You have disaster, natural disaster, and political, um, you know, nation-to-nation disaster. The third one was opposition. Um, The fourth one is abomination, verses 14 to 19. Now we're getting a little bit trickier here. The first three were easy. This one is where we get a little trickier. Abomination. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it should not, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now, before we get to the fleeing, let's just answer this question. What is the abomination of desolation? The abomination of desolation is, and it says, let the reader understand. What reader? Jesus is the one. By the way, if you have a red letter version, you guys have, if you have a red letter version, raise your hand. Okay, now keep your hand up. I want you to keep your hand up if, when it says, let the reader understand, it's red. Keep your hand up if it's red, where it says, let the reader understand. Okay, maybe a third of you. Mine's is red letter. It doesn't say it. it's black for that. It's, it shouldn't be black. Jesus is the one saying those words. I just say that so you can't always trust your red letter, I mean, in that part, because there's a debate on whether Jesus said it or not. Jesus is saying, when the abomination that causes desolation happens, let the reader understand. And then he starts talking about they need to flee. What does Jesus mean, let the reader understand? The reader of what? What is he reading? What scripture verse? What what book? The book of? Good guess. Daniel. Yeah. Isaiah is a good guess, but the book of Daniel. In Daniel, I'll give you the verses. You can look at them later. Daniel 9.27. Daniel 11.31. And Daniel 12.11. You got three verses in Daniel. Abomination that causes desolation. Daniel 9.27, 11.31, and 12.11. Abomination speaks about something that is repulsive to God and his people. Something blasphemous, right? It's an abomination to God. God hates it. A dishonor to God. A disrespecting of God. That's the abomination. Now, what's desolation? The abomination that causes desolation means that from this abomination that, that dis, dis, um, dishonors God um, and this profanation of the temple, um, that everything will be left desolate and destroyed. This abomination, this dishonoring of God that leaves everything destroyed. That's the abomination of desolation. Now, in Daniel 11.31, it's actually speaking about something very specific. Daniel 11.31 is speaking about the abomination of desolation that happened 160... Let me do my math here a second. 190, almost 200 years before Jesus spoke these words. In 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes set up a statue to Zeus in the Temple Mount. Imagine that. In the Jewish Temple Mount, he sets up a statue to Zeus. And every, all the Jews went crazy and they started you know, fight. And, and obviously that was a desecration of the temple. And so that was it before. Jesus is now talking about what's going to happen in the future. So that's a model of what's going to happen in the future. Not tit for tat exactly. His name's going to be Antiochus and it's going to be a, a statue of Zeus. But in a similar way of the temple being desecrated in the future, there's going to be a desecration of the temple. Now, what is Jesus referring to now? So that's what we got to ask now. What is Daniel, Daniel saying in Daniel 9.27 or 12.11? The answer, I think, now this is debated because I have 15 minutes left and because um, we still got to get through the rest of this chapter. I'm going to give you my interpretation, but I think if you disagree with it, that's okay. It really doesn't um, change the main point of this. I think what Jesus is talking about here is the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 under Titus 
um, Titus the general who became, yeah, Titus who was a general and then became an emperor, um, he destroyed the, the, the temple in 70 AD. He went to the Holy of Holies, removed various items from the temple mount to adorn his Roman victory procession. Now, this could also refer in some ways, some people might say, to the future abomination of desolation. I think 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about a future event. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about in the strictest sense here. I think, because what is Jesus answering the question to? What did the disciples say? When will what happen? The, the, the turning of the stones from one to another, right? When will the temple be destroyed? And it was destroyed in 70 AD. And then later Jesus is going to say, this generation will not pass away until these things have happened. So that's why I think it's the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now, what does Jesus want you to do if this is happening? Look at verse 14. Flee to the mountains. Verse 15. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in and get anything out of his house. Now, the idea there is they had flat houses. That's where you hung out during the day. You didn't hang out on your porch. You hung out on the top of your house, and it was flat, and the wind would blow, and it would be the coolest place to hang out and to, to socialize. So if you're at the top of your house, don't go back down. If the, if the abomination is happening, and if the, the destruction is happening, and this war is happening, don't even go down your house. Jump from house to house and get out of there. That's verse 15. Verse 16, a man, and a man in the field, don't go back to get your clothes. Just run. Verse 17, woe to the pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that it won't happen in winter because this is going to be destructive. Now, remember, these are birth pains. This is a particularly sharp birth pain, this AD 70 destruction of the temple. Why do we need, why should you run? Why? Look at verse 19. For those days will be distress or tribulation. Those days will be distress. Those will be days of distress, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of the world. Wow. This, this is going to be so bad that it's been like nothing else from the beginning of the world. And it'll never happen like this again. Now, that could almost sound hyperbole if that's AD 70. I mean, World War II, Hitler killed 6 million Jews. Stalin killed 20 million Jews. This couldn't be as bad as that in, in terms of sheer number. But in terms of percentage, in terms of ratio, this was the most destructive and dangerous time ever, at least in Jewish history. When, 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 when the Romans came upon Jerusalem, some of you know the story of Masada. Some of the Jews escaped to Masada, but no Jew escaped during this time. Those who didn't flee as the siege was happening, none of them escaped. All of them were either killed or enslaved. There was no one, no, no survivors. No, no, no one survived as opposed to you know, the Holocaust or other places. Percentage-wise, there are people who got away. In this, in this time in Jerusalem in 70 AD, 68 to 70 AD, the famine was so bad that mothers were eating their own children and their own defecation. In terms of the ratio and density, there was no disaster as bad as this one in history, even till this day. And Jesus is saying that's why when this happens, now this isn't for us because this is 70 AD. He's talking in 33 AD. He's saying you better run. You see this happening, don't even grab your coat. Just get out of there. Now this doesn't mean there won't be a future tribulation and trial again, Second Thessalonians 2 and others, but that's what Jesus is talking about here. So we need to flee. Now, this is not we. They needed to flee. This is a command to them in historical context. It's not a command to us. It's not telling you everywhere. Because 
think about it this way. If, if it's saying, well, it's the final tribulation, well, where are you going to run? If the tribulation is happening all over the world, where are you going to run? To some other part of the world where the tribulation is also happening? That doesn't make sense, right? It's, it's speaking of a specific historical context, 70 AD and Jerusalem. And so they needed to run. Now, Jesus closes up this birth pains discussion. All of these, by the way, are all birth pains. It's not the final end yet. It's all just birth pains. And you get that from verse 20. So look at verse 20. Now Jesus is wrapping up the whole discussion. Unless the Lord limited those days, talking about all the birth pains, not just this abomination of desolation, 70 AD. The deception, the disaster, the opposition, the abomination, as the gospel spreads everywhere. If the Lord did not end these days, no one would what? No one would, would, no one would survive. No one would be saved. But he limits these days for the sake of who? For the sake of the elect. And so God is going to limit these days, praise God, that this isn't going to go on forever. He's going to limit those days. And so he closes off this section of the birth pains with verses 21 to 23, which is what we read in the very beginning of this section. Look at verse 21. Then if anyone tells you, look here, here's the Messiah, or look there, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform many signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. Okay? And so, beware, be prepared for these birth pains. And, there, you know, 70 AD happened, but these things are still happening today, right? Not the abomination. But is deception still happening today? Yes. What about disasters? Natural disasters? Yes. What about political nation-state disasters? Yes? Yes. What about opposition and persecution? Yes. The 20th century was the bloodiest of all, of all centuries for Christian martyrs. And lastly here, the fifth element, turn your sheet over here, is the congregation or the gathering, the second coming. This is the fifth element, the second coming of Jesus. Look at verse 24. How is the Lord going to limit, limit these days of tribulation? Verse 24 says... But in those days, after that tribulation, after this whole, this is not speaking specifically of a, a small time, but from, from, from 33 AD all the way till today. But in those days, after that tribulation, what's going to happen? The sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky, verse 25, and the celestial powers will be shaken. That's a quote from Isaiah, 39, Isaiah 13, 10, talking about the final judgment of God. Or at least, maybe not final judgment, but God is going to judge his enemies. And in this judgment, what's going to happen? Who's going to be the center of this judgment? Verse 26. Who are, who's everyone going to see? Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He will send out angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the end of the earth to the end of the sky. He will gather his people. This is speaking of the coming of who? Of Jesus, right? This is how it's going to end. This is how this time of trial and deception and disaster is going to end. Jesus is going to come. Is this taught throughout the Bible? Yes, right? Acts 1.11, remember when Jesus went to heaven and they're all looking up and the angel said, why are you looking up? Don't you know that the way Jesus went to heaven is the same way he's going to come down? Acts 1.11. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Listen to this. 2 Thessalonians 1. You could turn there if you want. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10, talks about the second coming. Jesus will come to reward the rest of you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. 
Listen to verse 8. Taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. When Jesus comes, wrath and judgment is coming with him. It says in verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. He's going to come and destroy people forever in hell. In that day, verse 10, when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be admired by all those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. So it's salvation and judgment at the same time. For those who don't believe in the gospel, when Christ comes again, there will be judgment, the judgment of eternal destruction. For those who are in Christ, it will be admiration, glorification, praise, and final salvation. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning... You don't, have to, you don't have to face eternal destruction. The reason why we all deserve eternal destruction is because we're sinners. And because of our sin, we deserve to go to hell. Every Christian deserves to go to hell. Every non-Christian deserves to go to hell. Because every Christian and non-Christian is a sinner. And the penalty for sin or the wages of sin is death, eternal death. But the gift of God is eternal life through who? Jesus Christ our Lord. And so here's the good news. The good news is that God sent Jesus, not the second coming, but this first coming, God sent Jesus. And in 33 AD, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day on a Sunday to defeat Satan, sin, and death, to pay the penalty for all the people of every ethnic people group who would ever believe. And so trust in Jesus. That's the call. Trust in Jesus. Turn from your sins. You don't have to perish. None of us in this room have to perish. All of us deserve to perish, but none of us have to. If we will turn from our sins and turn from our religion and our righteousness and trust in Christ alone for our salvation. Amen. Revelation 1.7 says this, Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. And the, all the families of the earth will mourn over him. This is certain. Amen. Jesus is going to gather his what? In verse 26, he's going to gather his elect, his chosen ones. And so we as Christians sing these songs. Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending, swell the triumph of his train. Hallelujah, 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 God appears on earth to reign. Every eye shall now behold him, robed in dreadful majesty. Those who set at naught and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, deeply wailing shall the Messiah see. So we look forward to the coming of the crucified and risen Messiah. And when he comes, what will we receive? We will receive glorified bodies, immortal bodies that will never die, never tainted by sin, no more backaches, no more, hand, no more arthritis, no more pain, no more cancer. No more sin. No more desire to sin. No more selfishness. No more crankiness that comes from selfishness. No, 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 more, no more belly aching. Because we will receive glorified bodies and we will never die. We will never decay. We will never decrease in health. When we see him, 1 John 3 says, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself. And so we sing what we just sang. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll.
the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is what? It is well with my soul. Come, Lord Jesus. He's coming. Okay, let's close with these two responses. So those are the five elements of the coming. Let me just recap if you're taking notes. There will be deception. There will be disaster. There will be, what's the third one? Opposition. There will be abomination. And then there will be the second coming of Jesus. The con- I, I, don't, I hesitate to call it consummation. I'm a premillennialist. But um, the, the second coming of Jesus. The congregation, if you like. The congregating. The gathering of his people. And so, how do we respond in closing? What's the application for us? Two responses. Number one, verses 28 to 31. I'm going to be quicker here. Learn this parable from the fig tree. As soon as its branches become tender and it sprouts leaves, you know that the summer is near. Right? When you look at the tree, you can tell that summer's near. So, what's the lesson? Verse 29. In the same way, when you see these things, the deception and the disaster and the opposition and the abomination, when you see these things, those things... Before the coming, the four other things, when you see these things happening, know that what? He's near. The fifth thing is going to happen. The fifth thing isn't happening yet. You don't see that yet. You see the four other things happen. Know that he is near at the door. I assure you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things, these four things, have taken place. Heaven and earth will not pass away, but my words will never pass away. So it's not saying this generation will see the second coming. That's Because verse 29 says these things are the things before the second coming. So in verse 30, what's the generation going to see? They'll see the deception, the disaster, the opposition, and the abomination. They will see those four things in this generation. And then they will know that he is near and he can come at any time. So now Jesus can come even today. He's been near for, since 70 AD. He's been near. So that doesn't sound near. That's almost 2,000 years, PJ. It's far from near. Well, in God's timing, that's near. He's just patient because he wants everyone to come to repentance. But here's the lesson for us. Just like when you see a fig tree and you see the leaves, you know summer is near. When you see these things happen, guess what? Jesus is what? Near. And so what do we need to do? We need to understand these signs and we need to be aware that he's coming at any time. If you're not a Christian, you don't have much time. You don't know when you're going to die. You could die today and Jesus could come back today. And if so, you're going to have judgment. So repent. If you're a Christian... Think biblically about the signs of the times without being paranoid or alarmist. We are not to be alarmist. We're to be the most calm and collected of everyone because we know what's going to happen. And we know Christ will come to save us. Let's think biblically about these signs and let's think about it together. Let's discuss scripture. Let's correct and be corrected as we think about the end times. And let's get our emphasis right. Let's not fight about our different views about the end times. You know what our statement of faith says that every member of our church believes in? I'll read it to you. This is from the Baptist Faith and Message, Article 10. God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. In his own time and in his own way. It doesn't say how. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous will be in their resurrected and glorified bodies. They will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. That's the main thing, right? Now we could debate the different details of how it all lays out, but the main thing is the plain thing and the plain thing is the main thing and we are to major on the main things. Jesus is coming. Judgment is coming. Salvation is coming. Let's be ready. Let's be aware of what the Bible teaches on these things. And let's make the main things the main things. Let's debate those other things as well. 
but not as the main things. And the last, uh, that's, so response number one is learn, or um, response number one is um, learn that he is near by looking at the times. Learn that he is near. And response number two, last verses, verses 32 to 37. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son except the Father. No one knows when Jesus is coming again except who? The, the Father. Here, even the Son doesn't know. Did Jesus, did Jesus know when he was coming back, when he's saying these words in 33 AD? No, 